0: All right, everyone, welcome to this episode of uh, the AI Tech Sales Podcast. Very excited to have um, a mentor of ours, Mike Stoppelman, on the podcast with us today. Uh, Mike is an angel investor. He's the former SVP of engineering at Yelp um, and was uh, a software engineer at Google before that and really understands uh, the space from the inside and the engineering space and also the impacts that AI could have in the future. So, Mike, very uh, great to have you on the podcast today.
1: I'm super excited. excited to be here and and share my insights with all of you. And um, super super exciting time here in in the Silicon Valley ecosystem with with a uh, with all of the AI improvements that have been happening. So super excited to talk about it.
0: Yeah, it does feel like one of those historical mo- moments, right? When's the last time the Silicon Valley felt like this? You think?
1: I think that i um, I mean, it really drives. It really brings me back to like my first job. So my first job was at Google uh, pre IPO, 2003. Just got to the valley. Uh, Larry and Sergey were riding around on segways uh, at the <laughs> campus. It's about Google's about a thousand people in total. Yeah. Um, everyone, everyone was <laughs> having lunch out of a trailer. Uh, there was a trailer where they they prepared the food, and that was the only kitchen at Google. Um, and you'd walk down the office, and you you you'd meet different different software engineers working on complete pillars of Google. Right. So, like down the office was Paul Buchheit working on Gmail. And another person working on video search and another, you know, like Peter Norvig working on some AI stuff. And it was just like it was just one of those wild feelings of like the 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 search world had been opened up and then you know you're you're seeing all these different pillars of Google being built all at the same time. It was it was quite magical. And so I kind of feel like this is the the closest it feels like is to this. And I'd say the other time that I've had these kind of like twinkle feelings is that first time you use the internet or browser. And like you're you know but i was very young when that happened and so i don't i don't have exactly the same uh the same it's not the same feeling because i was so young but like the google analogy really works for my brain um so see, seeing seeing kind of the birth of this technology where it's just so useful right
0: yeah it's people have been talking about ai for 30 years jeff hinton has been on the forefront of it for what 50 60 years now But I think the difference, the two big things, right? One is it's actually useful in incredible, real, tangible ways. And two, it's accessible to the average human being. All you need to do is know language. And everyone, most human beings communicate in language, right? So you don't need to have expertise in an area to be able to utilize this technology.
1: Right. It's kind of a new UI in interacting with a computer that didn't exist before and now enables this very natural way to communicate with a machine, which, which has never, you know, sort of was happening, but like, you know, with keyword search, but this is really like the next level of it, right? Where you can, you can give a complicated idea and get something reasonable out. Even if you don't get a, even if you don't interact with the computer perfectly, it still kind of figures it out, which is incredible.
0: It is, it is really incredible. Um, I'm actually curious to, I had a question about your experience at Google. So one of the things that people will always tell you when you start a company or a startup is you've got to focus, focus, focus. You've got to own one part of the market, one part of the customer experience, whatever your vision is. Uh, but it sounds like even at a thousand people, which is big, but not that big, uh, Google was already laying down the foundations for all of its product areas in the future. You talk Paul, about Paul and Gmail and AI stuff and all the rest happening. How did, that, like, how did you balance at Google or how did Google balance the time that uh, you know focus versus being laser focused? yeah, laser focused on search versus making sure you lay the seeds for development in the future.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, Google's one of those, you know, I talk about this with investors as as I now, I'm a full-time investor. Like whether you invest in in founders that are technically amazing or do you invest in like the the market or the opportunity? And in this case, it, you know, like it's kind of one of those things where it was like obviously Larry and Sergey were were amazing founders but they also like the the product market fit of the overall space that they found was just so big right it was like it just kept expanding um and so i i think they it took them a while to get exact product market fit um you know they they started off with search and page rank and then they figured out the ads component of google probably like 4 or 5 years after they started mm-hmm. um and then that's what really took off the curve right so it was like paid paid ads keyword targeted ads really like set the Google train off um, on its tracks. And you know, I, I think all these other ancillary products just spawned off of this innovation and of the infrastructure that they were building because mm-hmm. they had to build such infrastructure to crawl the web and such infrastructure to index everything. and then that that that's then spawned all these other ideas of all, oh we need to index we need to index all the world's information so we're going to go with video and news and all these other pillar pillar things that's going to bring more users in and drive traffic. But Google was Google was really run more as an academic institution than a uh, business, and it yeah. just happened that they were in one of the most profitable business. Basically, like Google was an incredible product market fit, extremely profitable, generating tons of tons of revenue, and really just had this like had had a way like the way that they organized everyone was not through managers. They actually were the time that I joined Google. Google was very anti-manager, and so. Man- engineering managers would have 150 reports, so everyone everyone would just be running around working on whatever they thought was most useful. Um, Google would sort of the, the way that the way that they incentivize people to work on certain areas was they would kind of like nudge them with like, "Hey, this will really improve your chances for for like future stuff if you work on this thing," or "Hey, like we really the, the log system is is breaking. Please work on this." It would kind of be like driven by a need. You know, right? And there were so many straightforward needs, right? It was like, oh my God, like we're not gonna be able to build customers or the database is gonna blow up. We need to chart <laughs> it, you know? It's like, everyone yeah. kind of knew and, and you were incentivized because you had options in the company and you were like, I want these options to be worth something. Right. Um, And so everyone was just like running around. There for sure were people that were running around with nothing to do, but like, that was the minority at that time, right? Like everyone kind of had a thing that they were working on, um, yeah. so.
0: And it's it's one of the things I think I saw this video with, Vinod Kosla, which is, you know, don't set up a plan. You hire the team and you hire the team to set their own priorities, basically. So if Google hired the best engineers and the most ambitious engineers, and so you'd expect them to go and do their own thing. I I,
1: I agree with that up until the point that your mission becomes complicated to the, uh, like the mission is, is complicated for people to understand or the mission is not as inspiring as, as it was before. So like, the examples I give are like Tesla starlink like um the being able to like get starship into into space it's like the team is so crystallized focused on like making sure that the starlink or that the that the uh that that the rock in the in this in the SpaceX case trying to get the starship up that big rocket you know the the, the mega rocket up it's like such a clear goal right yeah. And it's like we need to get to Mars it's such a clear yeah. goal yeah and in the Google case it was like Let's get this, you know. Let's get search working. Okay, now we need to get. It. And at the time, they were competing with Bing and Alta and all these and Yahoo. And so it was just such a clear goal. Let's like beat all of these, all these other search engines in terms of ranking, and make sure our search results are better. And then it's like, okay, and that then the next goal was, you know, oh, we need to build a browser. Oh, let's build let's build the best browser. Let's, you know. So it's like they had very clear goals and objectives. Oh, let's get Gmail working. Let's index all the people, everyone's email. Let's give this, you know. Let's have infinite storage for your Gmail, right? Remember that right. at the beginning of Gmail, yeah, and, yeah, and, incredible, yeah, right. And then, and then, photo, you know, Google Photos more recently is like, oh, we'll take all your photos no matter what. So, um, all these things like the, the teams that had clear goals, like Google, for a long time had very clear goals, and then at some point it becomes like cloudy. It's like, okay, you need to work on the nth version of of AdSense is like, you know, the thing that picks the ads that show up on on a web page. is like, okay, that's not as exciting as like trying to get, you know, trying to get the search engine up for the first or second time, right? Yeah. So so it's a different, it's a different world. So I think in that, in the very goal oriented, like super, super clear mission, less management can work for, for a very strong engineering team. And in the, like, once you're post that mission and you're kind of in like improve, efficiency, increased revenue, like all that stuff. You really need strong management to drive the goals, to explain the story, to like figure out how people grow through career paths, to retain people. It's very simple when it's like, we need to get to Mars. (laughs) It becomes much, much cloudier as your mission gets more cloudy.
0: Yeah. Would it be fair to say then, if I were to play that back to you, that the clearer and more compelling your mission, the less management you need, basically. Yes,
1: I I think that that's true for, for a high octane team. Yeah. Um, I think, I think if you're trying to do it with like a less experienced team or folks that haven't been around, you know been, been working together in any sort of context need some sort of guidance. Yeah. Um, but I, and, and I think that you can get a lot more I think you can get a lot more out of a team with really, really really good management. And so what I you know the, the team that I built at Yelp, so going from six engineers to 600 engineers at Yelp, I always instituted in and I the, the, the thing that I used to espouse was Pragmatic Google. So I was like, hey, we're going to take the best parts of Google, which is like allowing an engineer to like fluff their feathers, you know, as an engineer of like which direction they want to go, but try to nudge it in a direction that's helpful to the business as well. Because a yeah. lot of times at Google, I'd see some engineer flying in a direction that's like completely opposite to where Google needs to go. But yeah, Google didn't have anyone to like push the person to like the right path. So I was always trying to do that at Yelp where it was like, Okay, you want to work on this machine learning thing. How about you work on this thing related to this ad system that would really help us? Right.
0: Mm-hmm. They're trying to match what they're what 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 kinds of problems they want to work on with what something yeah. like yeah.
1: yeah, there's this like famous like um autonomy, mastery, and purpose, the mm-hmm. Daniel Pig stuff. Um mm-hmm. that the the you know, an engineer wants to be autonomous. They don't want to be told what to do. They want to have mastery, they want to be the best at it, um, and they want purpose around it, right? And so mm-hmm. So if you can, if you can, if you can use their, you know, if you can keep them autonomous, right. But kind of nudge the autonomy in the right way without like destroying that like idea that they're, they're picking what they're working on. You can get more out of that engineer than if you like, just were like, Hey, I need you to work on this specific feature on this date. On, you know, with this, with these constraints, yeah. it's, you know, it's, as soon as you start adding like very constricted layers and people aren't picking what they want to work on it, it kind of like decreases their motivation. And so I was always, I mean, there are times when you have to do that. And it's like, that, that might be most of the time, but like when you have, when you have a team, the, you know, it's always helpful to like be able to do that when you can. And yeah. it works that, that applies to managers and salespeople, you know, it, it applies to every, every field that I've seen. Right. It's like those are human the more, people, the more people that are, are picking off the queue of like what they want to work on versus like you telling them what to do. It's like, it's always better. And especially applies to the engineering world where a lot of it's like creative, almost artistry level stuff.
0: Right? right. Right. It's, uh, I've heard someone describe it as it's engineers want to paint a canvas. They don't want to, you know, paint a wall basically. Right.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, exactly. Very
0: interesting. I want to switch topics a little bit, uh, Get your thoughts on large language models. And in particular, what you're seeing with obviously OpenAI, some of the stuff that Microsoft's doing, Google's doing as well. One of the things that is fascinating to me is how OpenAI, at least in terms of the consumer mindshare, has won this space, clearly won this space. If you think about the fastest growing application by an order of magnitude in history, which is what ChatGPT is. What do you think has enabled OpenAI to be able to do this versus not just the big tech players, but also universities, you know, Stanford MIT, some of the other big ones.
1: Yeah. What's amazing to me is that like GPT three and GPT three five, I you know, from my understanding, were available, like available on the OpenAI kind of like API. And then it took the innovation of the UI of of chat GPT to allow humans to like understand what had been created. Like right. I, I was already like wowed by GPT 3.5 when I was playing around with an open uh, playground. But then once you have the easy and easiness of ChatGPT, the way that I look at it is like ChatGPT is the SQL of AI. So right. SQL made databases easy to use. Yeah. Just, you know, you have business users to like not, you know, to engineers that use this language to describe, to be able to query data from a database. Mm-hmm. And ChatGPT was the, became, is, is the SQL layer of how you interact with AI models. Yeah. And so it, it just made this, it, it, it sped up the like I- interaction. Maybe Google, you know, Google had like a chat like thing working, but they were, they were worried about their brand. They're worried about copyright that, you know, like when you think about, like when you, when you close your eyes and imagine working at Google and imagine trying to release this thing, and then imagine the 50 or hundred teams that have a voice and why you shouldn't launch partnerships, business development team, like crawl team, blah, blah, blah. Like there's just so many teams that probably had a voice and like, no, you can't do it for this reason. No, you can't. Do-. It's like everyone's no, 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 no. It's like that kills the innovation, right? right. And of course you need to worry about the ethics and the the, the, the AI, constri- the, the, the ethics around releasing this stuff and misuse and all that stuff. OpenAI just had less of that stuff to worry about. It's like they've got 400 people at the company Probably Mm -hmm. only ten in the legal department, right? Everyone, (laughs) everyone everyone at a big company knows. You ask legal, they say no. Yes, yeah. So it's like less lawyers, less knows. So, and and it depends on the orientation of the leadership, right? And so Sam obviously was pushing for the Sam Altman was obviously pushing for this thing to get out, and they they ran it. You know, ChatGPT, my understanding was kind of almost like a hackathon experiment, and it worked. Right, and and then they had to like scramble. If you remember the original, like week or two weeks after the launch, it was like everything was down. It was kind of like Twitter when Twitter okay. used to have the fail whale. Yeah, and so it was just this crazy uptake um, of 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 the of ChatGPT, and I think they just you know they got into the consciousness you know all through social media, TikTok, you know Instagram reels. Like everyone was watching all these videos, YouTube. Like everyone was seeing how valuable this stuff was, and I think a lot of early adopters were using Jasper AI and underneath they didn't realize, but they were, they were just using GPT three, five, you know, to generate all this text. And I think you've seen there've been these generative AI companies that are, that have gone from zero just like chat GPT have gone from zero to a hundred million in revenue overnight. And yeah. investors are like, what, you know, like what's the defensibility? Is this real? Is it not? I'm going, <laughs> at, well, it's a hundred million dollars. Like, yeah. yeah. It's like
0: Even if it goes to zero tomorrow, a hundred million, it's, it's there. It's already there. It's already. Yeah.
1: I think it. I think it's the fastest uptake of technology. It, it's very similar. It, it feels so similar to the to the applicability of Google, right? So like that first time you do a Google search, you're like, holy shit, I get useful information back, right? Like you search yeah. for something, you're looking at, you're, you're like, oh, this driver issue with this sound card is not working. Here's the error. And then boom, you get a forum post of like how to fix it, right? And you're like, wow, this is incredible. And similarly, I'm having that experience with, with ChatGPT, right? You're like, "Hey, I need, I need, I need ideas for questions for a podcast on AI and sales." And it's like, <laughs> boom, you know, and it spits out like the ten things that, yeah, I'd probably come up with if I sat down for a half an hour and wrote it. But it's just, yeah. it's just generating these ideas from like all the text around the world, and then yeah. it's putting it out there. So, I think it's it's a magical time for AI. I think it's also a time, you know, with all of the news of, of people calling for pauses and different things. I think. It really is a moment to think about where we're headed with this, and I don't think we did a great job with social media, and I think that mm-hmm. we still do, we're still not doing a great job with social media. I think you're seeing that with like bans starting to show up in different states, actual states banning social media from kids. Uh, yeah. I think Utah, Utah had a recent bill, and so I think like our law legal system and government system is not set up for technology that that grows this fast, right? Uh, and and kind of like the thing that I've been thinking of is like instead of calling for a pause, it's like, I'd like, I'd like to hear pause, but like with some action, right? So it's like mm-hmm. if we don't have an action with the pause, we're not gonna like what, what are we gonna do with this pause? Is kind of my thing. And I I one idea that I've I've thought of is like, hey, you know, in, in the computer security world, we have these conferences where people do capture the flag or they 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 try to hack systems. And I think we need an equivalent moment where we spend we spend some time getting technologists together and do you know experimenting and seeing what the what the edges of how bad things can get so we the the regulatory frameworks can see what what's capable just right now in this point of time and yeah. maybe we keep doing that sporadically every month where we have these meetups at Stanford and MIT and all these different these CMU and all these best computer science colleges and getting computer science students involved and and the research community at large involved and start because the way regulatory frameworks generally work is someone has to die for someone to take notice right a lot of people are going to die if we don't like it's you know it's like the social media stuff it's like if there is a pro you know if if we you know if, if on social media someone you know a leader in burma or something takes you know I think, I can't remember the exact details around it, but if, if someone starts spewing fake news on social media about some group in some esoteric place in like a Burma and, and Facebook doesn't have a staffed person on the language, how are they gonna know? And are their machine learning algorithms tuned for this fake news in, in that area? It's mm-hmm. like, we you know we need to know what types of things can be generated from this stuff to like come up with the regulatory frameworks to put controls around it. Yeah. So it's kind of like uh, my first job at, at Google was click fraud for AdSense. So, so we call the traffic quality at AdSense. So the idea of people generating fake traffic on ads and clicking on the ads, and then sucking up the budgets of all these advertisers. So you're selling flowers on Google, you pay, maybe you're paying $15 a click. And I write a program to like generate all the clicks that suck up your, you put it in a budget of a thousand dollars a day. I write a bot, I'm your competitor. I write a bot to, to eat up all of the all of the the budget that you had for the day, and then right. my cost per click goes down because you're not out of the auction right, right. Yep. so that was the first problem that I worked on so so I think that like we need to start thinking about things like the analogy of that, but for the AI world so that so that people the regulators government policy people engineers start seeing what these what these use cases are right now we're seeing all the positives it, it reminds me of the beginning of social media and Twitter when the Arab Spring started to happen, right? Yeah. So we were all clapping and everyone's like, hey, social, like great social media, freedom, democracy, everything's great. And then yeah. it's like, then 2016 happens and everyone's not as excited, right? Right. And at least some portion of the population is not as excited. Right. So I think we need to have like a a really like a like if we're going to start pushing for this pause, Hinton, Hinton wants to do the pause um elon wants to do the pause i think we need to like construct a like a a more i think to technology optimists we need to come up with like a more there needs to be more of a nuanced and like meet behind behind a pause like i want to see a meet behind the pause before we before we pause everything or try to pause everything which i think is probably impossible Mm -hmm. um and so that's that's kind of my view right now
0: um, I have I have two thoughts that come to mind. There, one is um, a lot of the dangers behind AI. You know, if you think about Elon, and some of these other people, it's about it's around AGI and you know the possibilities of that into the future, whether it's ten or fifty or hundred years, whatever it is. The idea that there will be a malevolent AI that's sort of learned by itself, but really the problem, the immediate problem, is not that, in my opinion. Right, as you were saying, the immediate problem is using the capabilities of existing AI that is nowhere near, you know, self-learning AGI. In in malevolent ways or malicious ways, um, like the Burmese dictator or something of that sort. So it's not even run. Where could AI end up and how? Yeah, like if
1: you're if you're a dictator right now and yes. you see Jasper AI, yeah, and you go, oh, I can come up with a bunch of like propaganda about a group that I right. hate in the country, right? Like you can do that, yeah. Right? And you can generate infinite amounts of articles and infinite amounts of conspiracy theory stuff. Now, like right now, right? And you can use one of these models that like isn't connected to open AI. It's like the llama model or the uh, alpaca, whatever. And I'm sure yeah. you could get, if you have some smart people, you can get it. So it's generating reasonable stuff at similar qualities if you fine tune it. Yeah. Um, and so like, if you're addicted, you know, if you're, if you're one of these people that's trying to manipulate a population, why wouldn't you devote $5 million to that effort? Right. right. And so that's where we're at. And I think we need to see more examples of it. So people can get emotionally connected to it. I think people are not emotionally connected to it yet. And the yeah. sad part about human beings is we need to like see like real, like real like burning buildings and stuff and, and death yeah. to like get us going. But I think if we could see some of the examples and we could start policymakers could start seeing how this stuff really could happen. I think it's um I think that would give us some like tactile feel. I think right now we don't have a tactile feel of like what this yeah. thing's gonna look like. And we're screaming into an election soon and we're going to see some of it, but like, I think we could, I think we could like, um, we could gradually get in there. If we started to, if we started to do these checkpoint kind of like um, like just like the bug bounty programs, but we're, we're doing it in an orderly way and we're seeing seeing where this stuff's progressing right now it's all progressing hidden. Like it's all behind the scenes, like different intelligence agencies are building their own stuff and they're all getting ready to use this stuff in whatever next conflict we're going into. And I think we need to have a public version of that so like policymakers on the public side can start adapting and thinking about and we can have the think tanks like writing you know like ideas down and like getting Washington's like slow moving you know cycle moving right? Yep. right Government's not set up to move this fast no, it's not
0: no it's not, not and and the other thing about governments here I think is I don't think there is an economic incentive for businesses or companies to stop this by themselves. They may have a moral incentive, they may have a PR incentive that then translates into an economic incentive, but directly, there are no dollars on the line if you don't prevent these malevolent actions. In fact, there may be dollars on the line if you do prevent them, if you don't have access to some of these markets, for example.
1: Yeah, I think the real one of the big questions that I have internally, and this is what I've been voicing in, in social settings, is like, how much better does the next model get? So like we saw this emergent properties thing with with GPT 3.5 to GPT 4, it yeah. was like substantially better. But we're kind of run we've kind of run the run the world around, collected all the text. I, I, I imagine that OpenAI isn't going to get much more text out there, right? It's like squeeze the text the text yeah. from the internet, right? And so like what does does like another does like sucking in video and audio and all these other things end up making the model? so much like, do we get another step function up improvement? And like, is there a clear path to many more step function improvements? Mm -hmm. Uh, Because we could be very quickly in that super intelligent land between, you know, I I don't know how the whole singularity progression works, but like, do you have a super intelligent thing where it's like, okay, you have a system that knows math, physics, chemistry, biotechnology, all these things like way better than any human and has read every paper. And then you can ask it like, Make me a battery with a better substrate that has these properties. And it's like, like here, here's here's the chemistry of the battery, right? Yeah. And then it's like, and then you plug it in and it's like we we have we or here's a here's a superconducting material at room temperature. It's like boom, it like spits it out somehow, right? It's like yeah. if we get to a point where a country or a company has that has that technology, it's like it's gonna be a tipping point. It's just like this tipping point where it was like when you type into Chat GPT a simple idea and it spits out a bunch of stuff, and you're like, whoa. It's yeah. Like what happens when it starts spitting out science? You know? Right.
0: It's already happening. I mean, I know that pharmaceutical companies are using it for drug discovery research. A lot of them are. So it's yeah. it's incredible.
1: But like something like a super, like something that's like this reachable, it's close to reachable by a human right now. Like we yeah. can feel that we're close, but like it just spits out the answer right now. It's like, that. that's the, I think that's the big, you know, if it could give you, if it could give your society a, a huge step up from everyone else, it's like, that's you know, and that's, I think that's the, the worry from Elon and it's the worry from um, from other folks in the field. Um, and so I think we, I think we need, a, as a society, we need to balance like, where, you know, like, I think we need to inform ourselves of like where this technology is, is going to be, is going to be abused and we need to like limit that. And then, I mean, there are a lot of questions around should the, should general intelligence or should the AGI research be happening in computers that yeah. are air gapped and, not connected to the internet and all that that's beyond like, that's kind of beyond my purview. I'm not, I'm not enough of an expert to like say that we should do that or not. But, yeah. Uh, you know, I've been reading at the fringes around all this stuff. And uh, you know, I think that it's a, uh, it's a, you know, the, the nerd, the nerd interested in technology, part of my brain is just so excited. And then yeah. you know, like my, my like fear of humanity and like, you know, worry around like abuse is like, I, I have a very over, overexcited fear brain is definitely yeah. like very nervous, but I think we need to inform ourselves, like from my work and seeing, you know, my work on click fraud um, at Google really informs, like you need to see examples before you can build systems to defend against it. And so we need to see what the attacks are to be able to build the right layers of defense and depth. Right. So we need to, we need to like start exploring the bad side to be able to protect against it. And so I think that that's the, that would be my recommendation of like, we need to start informing ourselves. Um, And right now everything's in this utopia. Everything's great. None of the companies want to show any of the bad stuff, but I think we need to start showing the bad stuff to start getting the world to be more like to be to before something really, really gnarly happens.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Mike. It was a pleasure having you on the podcast today. Awesome.